everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is On Mike with Jordan Rich. Great to have you aboard. Conversation alive and well with creative people who have something to say. Today, the author of When the Smoke Cleared, A Murder Mystery in Malden. It's a true crime procedural by the lead police investigator, Bill Powers, involving an atypical murder investigation from the crime scene through the trial prep and into the courtroom. Bill Powers is the former commander of the State Police Detective Unit for the Middlesex District Attorney's Office here in Massachusetts. He epitomizes all that's right with law enforcement. Attention to detail, determination, hard work, loyalty, a man along with his colleagues searching for justice. It's a fascinating true crime case from a guy who spent years living the life of a homicide investigator. Bill Powers joins us now on Mike. When the Smoke Cleared, A Murder Mystery in Malden is the book we're talking about with Bill Powers. It is truly a procedural, but it reads like a novel, and that's what you want to hear, isn't it, Bill? That's exactly what I want to hear. And when, I, when people tell me that the, what they loved about the book was they could hear my voice from the beginning to the end, that, that means as much to me as anything. Well, it, it's beautifully told, and it's frustrating, too, so much of the time, which is what you feel when you're in a case like this, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But it's, it's not a bad frustration. It's what keeps you going. There's a drive. There's an intensity among the team, and we'll explore all this in the interview here, mm-hmm. but this drive to get it right and to process justice and to make sure that it – you're doing it for the victim. You really are. A- absolutely. It's all, right. it's all about the victim and the victim's family. Let's set the scene with a little bit of your background because you've got a terrific career with the state police and uh, also as a teacher now and so forth. But tell us about your start. I know there's uh, policing in the family. Yeah, um, proud son of a Boston police detective, um, and since the time I was old enough to remember uh, what I want to be when I grow up, when people would ask you the question, I wanted to be a police officer just like my father. Um, my goal uh, was always to be a Boston police officer, and that opportunity didn't come my way. But the opportunity to join the state police, who I knew absolutely nothing about at the time, uh, did come my way, and uh, I seized it. And uh, I can't imagine a better professional life than the one I've had. Most people think state police, they think troopers on the highway pulling you over for obvious reasons. But as you can explain, there's a lot more to it, including the investigative side. Very very much so. In fact, um, the way that I even found out uh, about the state police exam was two Boston detectives who I was working with when I was on a co-op job with the Boston police um, told me that it was the last day to fill out the application and take the test. And I said, well, that's really good, but I have no intention of doing that. And they went, why not? And I said, because I want to be like you guys. I want to be a Boston detective someday. And they said, they've got a great detective branch. Um, they, we work with them all the time. There's some really sharp guys. So they, in a very short period of time, changed the way I was at least thinking about it. And they said, how about we go downtown? Because headquarters at that time was on 1010 Com Ave. And we'll pick you up an application. If you fill it out, we'll bring it back. 
That's what happened that life, day. Life has a way of throwing uh, curves and uh, turns that uh, determine where you're going to be. Uh, absolutely. Well, the book by Bill Powers uh, just focuses on one case. We'll get to it in a sec. But you, of course, had a career that expanded over decades, and that means lots of homicides to investigate. Yes. yes. Yeah. I, I, I've never kept count, um, but when most of the time I was in Middlesex, we were averaging 25 to 30 in the county, so 54 cities and towns, uh, in the over a year's period. And so it's got to be 200 plus. And the stats on murder in the U.S. overall uh, indicate that a good number of them go unsolved. A tremendous amount go unsolved. Um, I think right now the national average is between 55 and 60 percent that get solved. That gets solved. So you're talking maybe 40, 45 percent don't. Don't get solved. And this is a moment of pride. But right, for me but and my people, my, you know, the guys that work with me and for me are right now in Middlesex County, it's at 95 percent. That's impressive. Um, and that's – again, you've got all different kinds of, of homicides. It's not like uh, – you know, some of them are, are easily solved and some aren't. But. When the perpetrators go uncaught, it's very frustrating for the public, but it must drive you crazy. Very much so. Very, right. very much right. so. And I know that I speak for everybody that's ever investigated a, a homicide on that. Now, Bill, in this case – what makes this so tricky for you guys when it's happening, and we'll have you set the timeline and so forth, mm-hmm. is the fact that it's, yeah, some smoke and what looks like a little arson issue at the beginning. There's no body at the beginning. There's no victim. There's no motive, nothing. Why don't you, uh, first of all, tell us when this happens. It happened back in uh, July of 2000. And it started out um, as a fire alarm going off in a condominium complex called the uh, Malden Mills in mm-hmm. in Malden. And uh, uh, Malden Fire responded. And uh, when they arrived, um, the, the heavy, heavy, thick smoke, acrid smoke, which immediately made them think there was an accelerant used and we probably had an arson. But they still had to gain entrance. They still had to knock down what, what little flame was left and vent it. And then they were able to start that process right away. They um, broke a couple of windows, started to vent the smoke, and then um, were, were um, venting the water as well or, mm-hmm. or flushing out the water at the same time. And then again, as it happened, uh, it became more obvious. And the fire captain at the time yelled to all his firefighters, this looks like it's going to be more um, than, than it, just it's a fire. A, it's a crime scene. It's a crime and scene. And what determined that in his mind early on? Um, the, the first thought was the, the acrid smoke and the accelerant. Mm-hmm. Um, but then secondly, as they were flushing out the, the smoke and in, in the, um, the water, they were seeing, there was a, a tipped over chair. There was some cushions on the floor. There was a tipped over table. Um, and that had what looked – there were red staining on it that looked like it could have been blood. Uh, and then as time went on, we saw more more stains and more places where, where blood was. Point of order, Malden is a smaller city north of Boston, not too far away, a couple of miles, right. maybe five miles. Yep. So, um, And at this point, you just have suspicion. When are you called in? When is the uh, DA's office taking note and the investigating team operating on this? So legally, the, the local police department does not have to notify – the district attorney's office, which which is the state police unit assigned to the DA's office, until they actually have um, uh, a death. Um, we've worked hard through the years to form relationships with every department that we work with 
to please call us when it appears to be that it could be. So that might be um, someone that's stabbed or shot and they're taken to the hospital alive yet and they may survive a couple of days and then mm-hmm. they pass. And then, then you would get a call saying, well, three days ago this happened. We didn't really process it because we didn't know it might be a homicide, so we didn't call anybody in. Then you trying to start from a position of, of, uh, of way back and, and, and trying, to, trying to make it right. So Malden detectives, like so many of the other cities and towns, will call us, um, and still to this day do, when it appears that there might be something more here. And mm-hmm. the amount of blood um, that they saw in the different places where they saw it uh, would lead someone with any investigative experience to say there's something more here. It's so important, and you hear this on TV shows, but it's so true. The crime scene has to be pristine for clues to start to get gathered, right? I mean, Absolutely. you can't – people uh, make the big mistake of, of touching stuff and innocently touching things and moving things when you really need to have everything as it is. Freeze. Don't touch a thing. Exactly. Right. My wife would tell you <laughs> that um, she could tie to me throwing pillows at the TV set when you're watching – you know, or um, not, or, or any of the crime shows um, where they go in, they roll the body over, they lift up the eyelid to see if there's particular eye, they go through the pants pockets looking for things. You, you, you're contaminating a scene. Yeah. Um, and when you do that, it's going to create havoc at trial because a good defense attorney is going to say, well, your stuff was all over the place. You move stuff all over the place. Or right. in this case, if the fire department hadn't been trained to keep a scene as pristine as they could. Well, well, one thing about your story, which was so intriguing, is it's not just about catching up with who did something that we'll explain. But it's also thinking as you're doing all this, Bill. Mm-hmm. How are we going to have a case that's going to stand up in court? So you're also an attorney, by yes. the way, and uh, that helps because you have it to does. think about all the legal machinations, which we'll get to. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit further about the case. And again, it's it's a case that was adjudicated and all that. You had a young girl. Uh, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. How did how how was the body discovered and when? So the body was discovered some nine months later uh, in up in New Hampshire. Um, and because we had stayed diligent to the case, um, I would say it was on the side burner, never on the back burner, because the protagonist in the book, Adrian Lynch, was the assistant DA, even if we had wanted to, would never have let us um, not work this case as hard as we did. Because nine months later, we still didn't have a victim. We didn't have uh, an inkling as to whether it was a male or a female or a youngster or an older person or what. We we didn't mm. we had a, we had a person of interest, but we we didn't have all we didn't have a motive we didn't have a weapon we didn't have a victim. And just to uh, delineate what that means, a person of interest does not mean a suspect that's been charged, right? That just means somebody right. you're looking at because right. suspicious activity. For me, that's a <laughs> word that I got rid of in my vocabulary. I don't know twenty years ago because suspect makes it appear that. Well, I've heard people say, well, we had four suspects. Well, no, suspect is the person that you want to arrest. Right. So you got four different people. You're saying you, 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 you're, you already have a predisposition that somebody is a suspect and that's who you're going to arrest. Mm. We don't know until all of the evidence comes together, all of the, the facts come together. Then we decide there's going to be an arrest. And for me, you're a suspect just before I put those handcuffs on you. So nine months goes by. You have a person of interest. We'll talk about him in a moment, but you don't know – you don't know where the victim is, but you'd learn uh, a bit more about who the victim likely is, right? Or do you? No, not at that point. Okay, so not it wasn't until point. the victim's bones and body mm-hmm. is 
is uncovered. uncovered. Okay. So that makes this a great dilemma, doesn't it? Without a, oh, without yes. a corpse. Yeah. Uh, and, and because it, 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 it closes all the doors. Um, I mean, you do all that you can, which we did, but we didn't have, without an identity of that person, um, we couldn't put it all yeah. together. And the fact that we're talking about a minor, a runaway, somebody mm -hmm. who society, quote unquote, sort of left behind or mm -hmm. forgot about in many respects makes it even more challenging. There's no real uh, shadow of this person no. at this point. No. And that, that I think – you talked about the amount of unsolved that are out there. There's that, and then there's the amount of mi people that go missing um, that may or may not uh, be homicide victims that right. are never recovered. This story is as much about the victim and the victim's family as it is about the perpetrator and about bringing him to justice. So before we give him any light on this and shine the light on him, let's talk about the 14-year-old girl who was the victim of a brutal murder and sexual assault. Mm -hmm. tell, us, tell us about her. So a young lady by the name of Kelly Hancock, um, and she had she was the oldest. Um, there was she kind of came from a split family. Her, her and her, her younger sister Lisa um, shared a mother and father. Her mother died tragically, um, literally at their feet when they were little kids, right. five and three. Right. Um, the father um, remarried, met another woman, remarried. And um, a few more children came along from that that relationship, mm -hmm. but it was a good it was a hard scrabble family. I think he would agree with my my characterization of that. Um, he was a, a a difficult dad that he because he was so tough. Um, but that's how he grew up. That's how he learned. Um, and so he was trying to do his best to be the best father he could be. And at the same time, he would tell you he did time. He had a criminal mm -hmm. past mm -hmm. um, and, and had, had his, his share of scrapes. Um, but because, of, like he would say, I was a bad guy on the outside because I needed to feed my family and put a, a roof over their mouth, uh, excuse me, over their heads. But I, I, I did it for my family. And, and, you know, people will look at that and they'll decide whatever they want to decide. Right. But I'll right. tell you from my perspective, um, I um, I learned a lot. You did. I and did. there's I, that sense of empathy when you understand deeply what's going on in real time. Yep. So let's sort of explain what's happening here. The body is exhumed and discovered, and forensics has to do their part. Yes. That's a big part of this. Even 20, 25 years ago, the science was still developing, but it was important to this case. It was, it was extremely important to the case. But it, again, it was 2000. She was discovered in 2001. Um, if you try to put things on a timeline, OJ was in 1995, mm. and people, the jury threw all that evidence out in, in their minds. It didn't make any sense to them. They couldn't make sense of it. So we're only a few years down the line. DNA is improving. Um, the ability to test is improving. Uh, the ability to connect it is improving. And it was very difficult because we had human remains. You also, you also had... Um uh, bureaucracy and red tape and, well, it's going to take several weeks, months or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you did a workaround. Yeah, we did. Um, it wasn't the first time we had done one. Be, and there was a second issue in that she was discovered out of state. Mm. So as we didn't know, we, we received the teletype item that everybody in the country received, every police department in the country receives. You're saying that they had uncovered human remains. And one of the, the guys in my office, Eddie Forster, um, Every day, we all did, but, but I mean, somebody did every day, but on this particular day, he was checking the teletypes and said, well, I, I it's worth a phone call. 
So let's take a look at the person of interest early on. And there are so many circumstantial things that point to him being uh, up to no good. Tommy Krause? Tommy Krause. Okay. Uh, Tell us a bit about him. Set the stage for us. He, um, I believe, was born in Revere. I know he grew up in Revere. Um, And um, he, as we started looking into him, um, well, to to back it up just a little bit, the reason he became a person of interest is once we began that investigation, we we were able to find everybody that lived in that building, whether we were able to talk to him on that first day or not, we, we were able to locate and make sure that nobody else was missing. Um, and we learned that he had left the condo complex uh, with his girlfriend and, and the two children um, and had headed up to New Hampshire um, moments before the fire was discovered. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, that puts you as, as a person of interest until we can learn more about you. Um, and uh, we did speak with him that night, the, the uh Cruise up with a couple of the investigators and, and talked to him, talked to his girlfriend, talked to her, her parents. They had been up there all day. Um, and uh, the story didn't match up to what we had. Um, yeah. Didn't you have CCTV coverage in some respect? Well, we did. We did. And we didn't get that. Uh, we got it two days later, I think it was, yeah. um, because somebody said to us there was a gas station directly next door. Um, and that was a thought of ours. Maybe whoever started this went and got the gas there. And they said, right. nah, it doesn't open until 7. The fire was at 6, 30. And uh, we went over anyway the, the, the following day. And they did have a, a tape. It's interesting. Uh, again, the misconception is that things happen and you have a hunch and you follow it up and you're bingo, hitting the lead. So much chasing down every lead. Oh, and uh, you write about... Uh, going out and doing interviews again with the same people over and over again mm-hmm. to try to get something mm-hmm. else. Yeah. Well, way back when I first started doing homicide cases in the late 70s, the feeling was you talk to somebody once and you don't talk to them again. Because mm. if you do, they're going to think you don't trust them and that they're lying to you. And it's not that at all. It's we learn more information. Um, sometimes they learn more information that they're willing to share. And sometimes they think, well, the little bit that I know really isn't that important. Yeah, I did see Tommy Krause get in his car and drive away that early, and I saw him pulling a little red wagon. And, but I didn't think anything of that. And then when the body is discovered, the identity is made, uh, and you go back and re-canvas everybody all over again, suddenly somebody goes, you know, I, I knew this at the time, but I didn't think it mattered, and I didn't want to put him, you know, in uh, in a bad bad place just because he was leaving early in the morning. But after a while, you and your colleagues, in your heart of hearts, know that this guy is likely the the perpetrator. Yes. But the point is so important at this point. You've got to prove it. You've got to have it stand mm-hmm. up in court. So there's all kinds of stuff going on with the uh, the labs and the and mm-hmm. the uh, expert witnesses that you're going to have to gather, because he's he's not a smart guy. Criminals aren't smart as a rule, but he's lucky in a couple of respects. Oh, he's been in his in his up to that point, he'd been lucky in a lot of ways. But uh, you know the the beauty of today um, now more than ever. But back then we were just starting to know how to get records from. In fact, this case was the first case in Massachusetts where we were allowed to use cell tower information that hooked his phone into right. bouncing off a cell tower, which was in the immediate area of where we located the victim. One harrowing thing you figure out after the fact is that he took the body that he had brutally murdered in the, uh, what would you call it, the lounge area of the condo yeah, complex, yeah, the, um, family room, function room, function yeah. room 
And he's driving a what a pickup, I guess, up to. It was a um, Ford. I mean, a Chevy. Was that a Bronco? Is that what they yeah, call some it? kind of a of a yeah. small truck. Mm-hmm. And the body is in the back of the truck, as are the kids. The kids are in the back seat. The body's behind them. Yes. Oh my God! Yeah. I mean, that's just unbelievable. Yeah. All right, so we find out there's a body. We find out who that person is. That's when the emotional uh, surge happens to you and your guys and mm-hmm. gals because you, you get to know about this little girl who has lost her life. Lost her life. In a terrible way. And it, it started out slow. It was a great um, identification, if you will, made by a, a Malden police officer who saw a picture of her hair and said, I haven't seen hair like that in my year, Kelly Hancock. Yeah, it was a scrunchie, wasn't a it? Scrunchie and a scrunchie and a very thick head of, of auburn hair, which mm. she was very proud of, of the thickness and the beauty of her hair. When you first had to tell the parents and you first made the overture to the father, the reaction, tell us about that. Oh, um, we were able to locate his, 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 uh, his, her father. He was rehabbing a house um, that he had inherited from his grandfather. And um, he, um, uh, in a nice way, I guess, to say he lost it. He, mm-hmm. he it, it tore him apart. And we had no idea what to expect. We knew a little bit about his background. We knew, in fact, that generally everything we do, it's, it would be the state police and the Malden officer. You know, one-on-one, we always did it that way. But in this particular case, he had had so many run-ins with the Malden police um, that they mm-hmm. were— they weren't uncomfortable doing it. They would have done it if we asked them to do it, but they, they were more comfortable thinking if we went and he was somebody that didn't know us. And even then, we didn't have her identity at that time. We just wanted to tell him that we had recovered the remains of, of uh, a young girl um, and that um, it may or may not be Kelly. Well, you were representing the Commonwealth of Massachusetts with all the officialdom, and, mm-hmm. and he's— irate and understandably so about the system failing her. Right. 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 No matter what the family's implications are in all this, it's right. it's happening. Since then, uh, it's a different relationship that has evolved. The, it went from being very, very touch and go um, to a point in this – in a different way happens in every other trial, right, in that you have to form a relationship with the family because you need them – to take you through that that whole trial preparation trial process, and it's a it's a two sided thing. They want to work with us because it's a loved one, and they want us to, to be have a successful prosecution. But it's also um, from our point, we need to be able to work with them, mm-hmm. and um, that that relationship grew um, over time um, because uh, Mark was very suspect about. Uh, whether we work, we were working on his behalf, or were we trying to work because we were Commonwealth employees and we were working for the Commonwealth, and we're trying to cover up the fact that his daughter was a runaway and you know was a victim of the system, so mm-hmm. to speak. And uh, um, I, I know it's in the book, but Adrian Lynch is the assistant district attorney on the case, and Adrian has been um, the top homicide um, prosecutor for quite a while at Middlesex. And if you met her, you would think that she was a school teacher. Hmm. She was very, um, just a very kind, kind woman, um, with a tremendous background. Comes from New Jersey, um, but if you took her for that, you'd find yourself lying on the ground after a leg sweep, saying, "What the hell just happened here?" <laughs> um, She's amazing uh, in the way you describe her, and so thorough. I think mm-hmm. starting her day at 
very six in the morning with a hot cup stuff. of coffee and never giving up. And she's there at eight o'clock at night, and she does at least six days a week. And I think what I learned, I learned a lot, but I think what I learned is is the procedure after the arrest. The arrest is just the first part. Mm-hmm. Leading up to the arrest, you're you're thinking, what do we have? How important is it to make sure all the evidence is in place? And then you start uh, the pretrial preparation, mm-hmm. um, and that involves you guys as well as the DA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we worked. We 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 sit at the same table and and we discuss pretty much constantly. Um, the preparation is this. Now, you know, like all of us, we have more homicides. And, and Malden had a homicide two weeks after this. So, mm-hmm. you know, that took their main guys off with a couple of other guys that worked with me and for me. Um, and so things get a little bit splintered, but we still come back together and still come back together. And the closer you get to trial, the more you do it. Now, the, the complexity of this case was that it's a circumstantial case. And they can be the hardest to prove, but they're the best to prove when you can show a jury, and we did it through more than 50 witnesses coming in, how all the pieces of that puzzle fit nice and tight. Um, if you leave one piece out, then that could be the reasonable doubt that a juror is looking for. A reasonable doubt is the optimum phrase. Very important. And it's, it is important in our justice system to have that opportunity for people to prove themselves mm-hmm. um, free of guilt. But I, I want to talk about a couple of things leading up to this. He's in, is it the Charles Street Jail? He uh, was in the middle, no. He's I'm in sorry, Middlesex. Middlesex. I get that confused. Middlesex Jail. And this is a awaiting trial and so forth. And there's a, um, shall we say, uh, prison tete-a-tete between he and another inmate. Inmate. And uh, this must happen much more than I even imagined, that there's scuttlebutt, people start talking and loose lips, as they say. Tell it, us about it, that. It does. And, it, and sometimes... Um, it um, it never comes to us. It's not it's not brought to our attention. But it's like anything. You're living in jail. You're living five feet away from somebody else. You're with them every day for an extended period of time, and you start to have conversations. And in this particular case, Tommy Krause was uh, um, very open about what he had done, and he provided some information that we didn't know because we'd talked to him a couple of times, and then he, he requested an attorney. So then we couldn't talk to him anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was different. This was different. And this was a person in jail that's not somebody that we reached out to and said, hey, if you can get them to talk about different things, we can't do that. I think there's people that think we can just use our little it's, – it's, it's against the rules and, and rules of evidence and would be – we would lose our status as police officers if we ever did that. Um, so you can't have that. And, and uh, this guy um, uh, was, came forward. He, he came out. He came out of – the Middlesex jail where he was being held awaiting a trial, and then he was transferred to Billerica through no dealings of us whatsoever. And as soon as he cleared the courtroom that day, he spoke to a police, uh, to a trooper, uniformed trooper that he saw at the court and asked if he could connect them into to the people who are investigating that case. There, there is that uh, jailhouse code, if you will, uh, the, the pecking order of criminals and those on the lower end who get very little respect – None of them should get respect, but the ones who get the least are the ones who attack and sexually molest or kill kids. Yes. So yep. there, there's a certain moral code, as weird as that sounds, right? It, no, no, there, there absolutely is. And there's, uh, there's tough guys in jail. And the, the gentleman here um, that's in the book was a tough guy. And by a tough guy, I don't mean you go around beating people up. That You don't have to do that. They, you just know when you've talked to yeah. someone— I don't want to mess around with a tough guy. Well, oftentimes, it seems to me that the 
the dumbest criminals are also the ones with the most braggadocio. They yeah. just they have egos, and that's what sinks them. Thankfully, yep. you know. So um, you you preparing the trial. Uh, you talk very. Uh, respectfully about the attorney on the other side who's since passed away. Yes. And I thought that was really interesting because oftentimes you're combatants, right, in a mm-hmm. courtroom. But he's got a job to do too. If you're going to be in this arena, um, you need to understand all of that. So, yeah, you, you, it's an adversarial role for sure. And he's got to – he or she have a job um, to test on the, on the Constitution now constitutionality of all the work that we did. Right. Um, did we stay every, everything above board? And that's their job, and we're fine with that. We more than understand that that's their job. And so that, so that I'm, not, I'm not saying that every, every police officer and every defense attorney get along on everything. You don't find that anywhere. Um, but it doesn't mean that, that when all is said and done, you can't have a, a decent conversation. Well, there, 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 it came across that there was a grudging respect for right. each other, yeah. and uh, they're still human beings at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, and he's doing what he can in the trial to uh, cast doubt on any of the expert witnesses. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, you had some amazing people, including the fire uh, arson experts. Yeah. And these these people are really um, – they're scientists. They, they're, they are. And, and that's one of the things I think I put a little section in there with a the conversation with, with uh, Adrian. We went to law school to be lawyers, not to be scientists. And, and But the courts, because of forensic science now, because of w- how it's developed, you've got to be a scientist too. You just can't say, ah, I don't, I don't need to know that stuff. Adrian read books after book on forensic anthropology for the recovery of the remains and, and had experts testify to that. And she spent, I don't know how many untold hours, uh, not only reading but interviewing um, the fire experts. And it sounds like, well, it was an arson, big deal, you had a homicide. We needed to prove the arson, and we needed to prove the timing of the arson, before you know, as a as a, a forerunner to to the homicide. Mm. Because if his experts could show that he was gone twenty minutes before the fire began, well, that's going to annoy to their benefit. If our experts say it was more like three to five minutes, then that's going to annoy to our benefit. Bill, how do you determine whether it's a good idea to go to the press when someone's missing or when someone is is a person of interest? And and that's a delicate situation because, you know, especially with social media now, which wasn't the case mm-hmm. then, how, how do you make that decision? Who makes that decision in your case? I was just going to say the fortunate part <laughs> is the DA makes a decision on okay. that part. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's – yeah, it's always a um, – it's a delicate thing because you do want to get the, the information out. You, you don't want the public – not to not to know and not to be there to be able to help you out. At the same time, there's concern about opening a door that mm-hmm. um, information gets out that you don't want out yet. Ultimately, everything will come out at trial, mm-hmm. but it becomes a, it can become an issue. For example, go to the, the the gentleman that was in jail. If we had put everything that we knew out into the newspapers. Your defense counsel comes back and says, well, of course he knew this, this, and that. It was in the Globe. It was in the Herald. He could have read it anywhere. It was on the news. Um, And so by not having that information in the public domain um, and and them, and you'll see in the book, he knew a few things that had never been made public. And that gives him credibility. It's very much a chess match, isn't it? Very much. You've got to think about – and again, we're Mm -hmm. we're on the good guy's side at this point. Mm -hmm. We've got to think about – what we're doing for justice for the victim and how we're not going to screw this up by covering all of our bases. Yep. Yeah. I think that's what the takeaway is. And I said to you, 
it reads like a procedural but a novel at the same time because it's exciting and you want the good guys to win. But this could serve as a teaching tool. You teach a lot. This could serve as a wonderful teaching tool. I, too. I, I think so. I, I, you know, it's funny when I, I mean, the case was twenty years ago, right? So what took you so long? Um, I knew from back then that I really wanted that a story should. There was a story here to be told, and it, and it, it should be. And I, to that end, I'm not a writer. It's in my blood, but I'm not a writer. I'm a I think I can tell a pretty good story. Um, I went back to school and I took writing classes, and ultimately, um, I hired a, a, a hired I really yeah. did. I hired a woman, and and, and together, um, she taught me how to write. Well, it, it's helpful to have also the not just the memory, which is pretty sharp. Congratulations, mm-hmm. but also the facts. A, a, mm-hmm. a little Joe Friday thing yep. here. The facts, ma'am. And you lay them out almost the way uh, I would think you're working on it day to day, as as though we're there in the room, in the squad room with you guys. Yeah, she taught me how to be, how to write a narrative. She taught me how to write with empathy and with emotion, and um, um, how to develop characters, how to develop a scene. So it was, I, as she said to me when I first approached her, "You write great police reports. People don't read. <laughs> They're packed with facts, but that's not what people want to read." What what I really take away too, in all of this, is the emotional impact it has, and and we all know that it affects people. You're a human being, but when you're at the mercy of the scene, you can't do anything but investigate the scene. Most of us turn away and want to run the other direction. Mm-hmm. You have to run towards it. This case of all your homicide cases really affected you, didn't it? It did, um, for sure, but in a in a, not in a. I mean, I didn't have nightmares about it. I, I didn't, mm. you know, I say didn't lose sleep over it. Um, I mean, you wake up and you start thinking about it. But I, I've, I've always said I'm, I'm better in the arena than I am in the stands, mm. right? So if I'm if I'm in the game, if I'm in the fight, if with however you want right. to use that word, and I know right. people don't like to refer to a homicide case as a game, but you can understand the the, the parallels there. Um, then I'm I'm easily focused on what we're doing. And I can keep all that other stuff sort of behind me. So that begs the question about detective work in general. People mm-hmm. think uh, you're either Sherlock Holmes and you just think so logically and, and laterally that you can figure anything out. Or you have to be thorough and follow every possible lead. Is I believe it's probably a combination of the two. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. And if you ever... Met the people that were in the office then and are in the office now, and every name the detective unit, most down to earth, regular men and women you'll ever be around. And most people would never think that's what we do for a living. But you describe like the first meeting with Krauss, mm-hmm. right? And he is at this point just a person of interest. And you got to get that feeling something's not right. There's something happening here, body language. Oh, sure. And you can, yep. but you can't do anything about it until you have evidence. Right. Right, so. but it, but but you write that up, you write that down, and you make sure. Um, and that was a there was a one little piece where it, where he showed an emotion, and it was in the report, and it was written the next morning. And um, those things go a long way. And and we've learned because we've had so many cases through the decades that um, you see little things that you might or a new person may not have spotted, um, and you make sure you you know I'll, I'll say to somebody, well, Mark, make sure that's in the report. One coda, and that is you mention a particular place in Boston called the Garden of Peace. Yes. It's very emotional and very moving. Why don't you describe it and what happened uh, in honor, in memory of Kelly? So we established that the, the, um, 
Commonwealth established uh, a location. It's right behind one Ashburton place and the other state. It used to be a state building. I think it's now privately owned. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's kind of a shadowed area. Um, the state house is at one end of it, one Ashburton place. It's where people would come, you know, sit down after a walk, eat their lunch, uh, et cetera. And it was just a, an open brick thing. They turned that into like a dry river um, with rocks. And it's grown so much now that the river of rock is still there. But now they've built a wall around it because there's so many names for it. But to, to have a name put on the wall, you can be um, – you need to – to, you need to have died by violence. And so it could be someone in a gang um, who was murdered by someone from another gang. Well, they still lost their life to violence, and mm-hmm. they still can be on that wall. It could be a police officer. It could be for – I'll give you a couple of examples. Bobby and Jack Kennedy are in there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you have to be from Massachusetts. So there, um, a lot of the people who died um, in uh, 9-11, 9/11 are on yeah. that. Uh, people um, from Edgewater Technology, the seven that were killed that day. Um, most of those names, not all of them. It's a, it's a family decision to make. But yeah, and Kelly's in there. Kelly's Kelly's in, in there. Very, yes. Yeah, you just mentioned uh, uh, the killings in Wakefield, and we didn't talk about that. It does play a part in the book. That was the worst uh, mass killing in Massachusetts history, I believe. Yes, there were seven killed the, the morning after um, Christmas. Workplace murders, right. unbelievable. And you right. were you responded as everybody did at that point. Right. What What was interesting about that, and that story was originally in this in this book, and because it made the book so long, we took it out and made it a separate ebook. But um, I just wanted to show people we're working on several homicides, including Kelly's homicide. Um, and then the day after Christmas when people are on vacation and it's nice and quiet, there were two people in the office that day, myself and Duke Dunneu, uh, who now heads that unit, um, which is for me just a, a great thing because I brought him in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, um, we get that call. And so drop everything we're doing and off we go. Everybody gets called in from, from their days off. People come in from other cities and towns and other detective units with the state police to help out. Um, and, uh, and we've got to get that buttoned up. We've got to get that prepared for trial. And in the meantime, we're preparing for that trial. We're trying to prepare for this trial. I, I get the, the point being, of course, that that story on it alone is a story that needs to be told. Um, but it's just to show you that um, people that do this for a living, unlike TV, unlike the movies, you don't get one case and you work that case and you do the kind of some of the things they do. Um, it's, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not a, I like to say it's not a job for, and I use common phrases like an alpha dog or a type A personality. It's a slow, it's an old Irish proverb I, I use all the time. When you don't know where you're going, walk slowly. Mm. And it really is what have to happen. You can't get all fired up. You can't run around, yeah. you know. Um, crazy to get something done. It's you got to you got to be the the calm one in the room. Bill's website, by the way, is powersonpolicing.com. You can read about the book there and about his background. But the book is titled "When the Smoke Cleared: A Murder Mystery in Malden" by Bill Powers. And finally, I'll just add this: the respect I have for law enforcement is very very high, but it goes up about ten notches after reading this because you realize how much how much time when the rest of us are sleeping. You're up trying to solve this, and it's not just in the night hours. It's all day long trying to solve this to bring justice and to bring some, I don't want to use the word closure. I know you don't like that I word hate either. That word. So I'll just say to bring some sense of 
determination what happened. We need to know what happened. Mm -hmm. And we thank people like yourself who have done it for decades. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can learn about Bill's book, When the Smoke Cleared, A Murder Mystery in Walden, and a whole lot more at his website, powersonpolicing.com. We thank him for his time today. I thank you for listening anytime, for subscribing and downloading this podcast and telling your friends and family about it. Those ratings and reviews are much appreciated as well. Till we meet again, dear friends, this is Jordan saying, be well so you can do good. Take care. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.